Good morning and welcome to our next session slash lesson of studying our confession of faith. We are and have been in chapter two of God and the Holy Trinity, and we are and have been in paragraph one of chapter two of God and the Holy Trinity, although it's my goal and aim to finish and conclude paragraph one of our confession of faith, of chapter two of our confession of faith this morning. And the portion of Second London Confession, chapter two, paragraph one, that we are that we have been studying goes like this. And if you have it on your phone or it's in the back of the, the hymnal, let's see, it would be on page page six hundred and seventy-one of the hymnal. At the end of paragraph one, we are studying the relative attributes, and we confess this about God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God is most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. And as we've been saying, these are relative attributes. We are attributing or predicating a relation between God and something outside of God, namely us. And the relative attributes are, among the attributes of God, are particularly precious to the people of God, or or maybe I should just say they are precious in a special way because they are God in relation to us, the relative attributes. So when I study God's love, it's the love that I experience. And when I study God's mercy, it's the mercy that I experience and that I have received. And so the relative attributes have a a special kind of significance for the people of God because they are our God, the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in relation to me, uh, which is a further reinforcement of the beautiful fact that we don't study uh, a God who is an idea a philosophy, a principle, a thought, but the living and true God who is my God and myself in relation to him. So we're picking up at um, abundant in goodness and truth. We looked at most loving and gracious, merciful and long-suffering. And so we're picking up at most abundant and goodness and truth. And then we'll look at God who forgives our Redeemer, God who rewards them that diligently seek him. That's third And lastly, God, who is most just, our judge. And we'll spend the most time on God who forgives and God the judge. But the first one is that we confess that God is most abundant in goodness and truth. And as I mentioned on a different Sunday, this is simply quoting from Scripture. Uh, This is not so much systematic theology that collects the teaching of Scripture into um, propositions, but rather it is simply repeating what the Scriptures say, that God is most abundant in goodness and truth. Man can be good. Man can be true or, or say things that are true, but God is most abundant in goodness and truth. We use that, that uh, qualifier, that superlative most, to set God apart because God does not subscribe to goodness and God does not uh, align with the truth. Rather, God is the source and the sum of all goodness and truth, and therefore he is most abundant. No one can be more abundant in goodness and truth than God, 
because he is the source and sum. He is the measurement. And all things are good, only measured in relation to God or comparison to God. All things are true, only in relation to God, the sum and source of all truth. We could, we could describe this as God's veracity, his truthfulness. And he is most abundant in goodness and truth, not because he aligns with some abstract truth that is over him and he under it, but because he is the truth. Moving to the second thing, God as redeemer or the one who forgives, quoting again from scripture, we confess that God is the one who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And we know God as redeemer. We know God as the one who forgives because God himself took on flesh for us and sustained in that flesh, sustained in body and soul, suffering that liberates us from our punishment, the punishment that is due for our sins. God himself provided all things necessary for the salvation of those who call upon the name of his son. God has provided forgiveness. No one had to persuade God and move him to be forgiving, which isn't possible to move God to be anything. God forgives and initiated the source and cause of forgiveness because he, he himself is the one who forgives sins. If we look at the, the history of the world and, and how forgiveness and salvation came about, we say, how, how, how did this come to be? We find it is decreed and planned by God outside of the creation of the world or before the creation of the world, and it's implemented and effected by God and what does man do? As we, we say many times, all we contribute to our salvation is our sin. <laughs> and God contributes the fullness, everything of salvation by his own decree, by his own initiative, by his own activity and action. And we read of this in many places, but I want to read particularly, particularly from Isaiah chapter 53, such a pre precious passage, verses 4 and 5, where it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. In the Garden of Eden, we don't see Adam and Eve saying, please, 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 won't you forgive us? And then God saying, okay, 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 I'll, I'll make a plan, I'll figure out a way to fix this. We see God immediately pr pr proposing to man the means of salvation, which although revealed darkly in that time, were his initiative, the, the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent, is God himself. He's saying, I will bring about this salvation. I will put enmity between you and the, and the serpent. So from the beginning, God initiates redemption. God himself takes upon, uh, takes upon himself the, the cause and the means of our redemption in the incarnation, and God is the one who forgives us. With Israel, God institutes the sacrificial system. He is the one that provides a means where their uh, iniquities can be atoned for and their ceremonial uncleanness can be wiped and removed from them so that they can live long in the land, so that they can continue to be his, his holy people in a holy place. Well, we find that in the new covenant, 
the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, we receive a full and final, a perfect and powerful redemption. If God is the one who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, how is it that we enter into or receive this forgiveness of sins? God has given it to us in the new covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ because all those who call upon the name of the Lord and believe in the one who was crucified for us, dead and buried and resurrected from the dead, receive salvation and forgiveness of sins in his name. And the promise of the new covenant is what? I will remember their sin no more. He is the one who forgives our sin. He is the one who redeems us from all our iniquities. And the work of redemption is the work of God, which means it's the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ought to praise God for our salvation, and we ought to praise God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, for our salvation in the same way that they did in Revelation chapter 5 upon Jesus' ascension, when it says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. When we think about salvation, what we see from beginning to end is the grace and the initiative of God. What does 1 John teach us? That God's love is most evident to us in the fact that he loved us first and that he loved us while we were sinners. And so we love him because he first loved us. And he was the one who planned and accomplished and applied our redemption. So remember that the relative attributes connect to titles that God gives himself in the scriptures. And so the title that we would use here is we call God our Redeemer, or we could call God our Savior. A number of, of titles uh, are drawn from the fact that our God is the God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. He is our Redeemer. He is our Savior. But don't we think of just God in the flesh, Jesus Christ as our Redeemer and Savior? Well, he is the one who is the sacrifice for our sins, but God the Father is our Savior. God the Son is our Savior. God the Holy Spirit is our Savior. We just understand that to be done, the, the, the suffering and the, uh, the obedience is only in the context of the incarnation, but the plan and the accomplishment and the application are from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a, it, it feels wrong or inappropriate to speak of this so quickly in an almost, a, not a sterile way, but this is our redemption. <laughs> we should just stop and sing a hymn, it feels like, because it's so wonderful. Uh, please don't take from my hurried pre presentation uh, of this as we move through the content any kind of, um, anything that would take away from the glory of what we're describing here. This is everything to us. The, the forgiveness of our sins as God himself takes, up, takes it upon himself to free us from our misery and to free us from our iniquity uh, and our transgressions and our sins through his own suffering for our sake or for us and our salvation as we confess. Uh, it's a, a wonderful and beautiful truth to say, my God uh, is my redeemer. My God is my savior. And I did not have to persuade or attract or in any way move him to 
okay, fine, I'll do it, but rather he of his own grace, he of his own mercy and love and goodness forgave me in his son, Jesus Christ. We'll come back to forgiveness again later when we uh, talk about the justice of God in just a moment. The third uh, relative attribute or predication that we see here is that we confess that God is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Again, this is coming just quoted out of Exodus chapter 34 and Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11.6 says, He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And our confession lifts that quotation and includes it in paragraph, uh, paragraph 1. What does it mean that God is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him? Well, it means that he's not a God who refuses to be found. He's not a God who refuses to be found, and you must seek him in the hidden places. You must climb the mountain and enter the cave and, and seek him in the nothingness of nothing. And, and then perhaps only after the greatest of exertions and pilgrimages will you maybe, if you are enlightened enough and lucky enough, find that God who is. No, he is not the God who refuses to be found. In fact, all creation is an incessant symphony that says, he is, he is, he made the world. And so nature itself is one of the means that it compels man or impels man to, to look, to, to seek, to search, to say, I want to know the God that made this good world, this world full of beauty and life, this world full of harmony and order, this world full of symmetry and, and law and balance and design and intricacy. I want to know the God that made all these things. He's not the God that refuses to be found. He's the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. This also is referring to those who come to him for mercy. Those who diligently say, Lord, please forgive me. Those who, who knowing God, come to him. He does not hold them back and hold them away and say, no, not you, no, not yet. Rather, he is glad to receive his people who come to him. But one of the, we have to make a few qualifications here. Rewarder of them that diligently seek him. This is not affirming what, what has been called the idea of the noble savage, the idea that there are peoples who have never known the truths of revealed scripture, and yet they live by a certain religiosity of a God, perhaps even monotheism, and they have some sense, uh, they, uh, they certainly have some sense of morality, but perhaps they have a, a more clear sense of, of what God has established in the Ten Commandments that's written on the heart of man by nature, though effaced to a degree. And so we're not saying they too have received salvation, nor are we talking about the salvation of philosophers, as, as some have posited in the past, that certain people like Aristotle uh, or others who had such an excellent um, description of the perfection of deity despite the fact that they had a great stock of, of wisdom in being able to express perfection of being and many other things, and they had a great, uh, amazing amounts of truth and usefulness in their philosophical investigations, nevertheless, those things fall short when they fall short of revealed, uh, revealed truth, well, I should say specially revealed truth, the scriptures themselves, the gospel, so we're not, when we say that God is the rewarder of them that, that diligently seek him, we're not affirming people saved apart from the gospel, whether that's philosophers or religious persons uh, who have never known the word of God. Because as we also confess in chapter 10, 
which would be if you're using the hymnal, page 676, uh, in paragraph 4 of chapter 10 of Effectual Calling, we say this. It's talking about that there are some who hear the gospel and have certain common operations of the Spirit on their hearts, so they feel a sense of conviction. They, they may even live a somewhat outwardly religious life, but they are not effectually drawn to God. And then it moves on away from people who have heard the gospel but not believed to people who have never heard the gospel. And it says, much less, this is the end of paragraph 4 of chapter 10, much less can men that receive not the Christian religion be saved, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature, that's the, the, the light, the knowledge you can get from natural uh, from the natural world and philosophy and deduction and the law of that religion they do profess. They may, the, they may be the most um, faithful in their religion. They may be, may be the most adherent to their religious principles. They may be extremely wise in terms of philosophy and the light of nature. But Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but through me. And so if they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, they, they do not receive salvation. They may have much common grace, but they do not have special grace. But God is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. He is the God who has declared his existence to the world in nature, and he has declared his gospel to the world through his church. And it's our responsibility to bring that testimony to the world and to pass it on and to pass it forward so that the nations will hear Fourthly and lastly, and we'll spend the most time here, and we'll also talk about forgiveness again under this heading, let's discuss the justice of God. <clears throat> and we can jump straight to a, a sort of conclusion. What title would we attribute to God based on his justice? We would say that God is our judge. So when we say that God is our judge, that's the, the title in the scriptures that, that we use from which we draw God's justice, or it's one of the ways in which we establish and speak of God's justice. What is the justice of God? It's to retribute. To retribute to the creature what it deserves according to God's word. So to retribute according to God's word. Retribute means giving back. It's a response to something. The creature acts, and God retributes to the creature according to his word, either by grace or punishment. Now, it's very important to understand that, as we said with truth and goodness and really everything, but just reinforcing again for justice, when we come to the justice of God, we do not theorize an abstract system of justice and then say that God perfectly exemplifies this system of justice or subscribes to it or holds to it. 
Rather, God himself is, once again, the source and sum. He is the measurement of justice. God is justice, and all that he does is just. And then when we see the way that God acts, then we learn what it is to be just from what God has done, not because we compare God's works to something that we think is justice. So what God says, notice according to God's word, that's a, a sort of a limiting factor or a qualifying factor in the way that we're discussing God's justice. This is God's justice with relation to creatures, and he will give to creatures what they deserve according to his word, either by grace or punishment. And so if God says, if you call upon the name of my son Jesus Christ, you will be saved, his justice will give you grace. His justice will give you salvation because that's what he has said he will do. He has said he will give forgiveness. He will give salvation to all those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ. So he will retribute. The, the, the creature says, I believe. I call upon the name of Jesus. God justly. You won't go to God according to his word for grace and then he'll say, no, I'm actually not going to give that to you. That would be for God to violate his justice. But he will absolutely give grace to all those who call upon the name of his son. Contrary-wise, in a sense, or just differently according to his word, God has also declared that he will punish the wicked. And all those who do not call upon the name of his son, Jesus Christ, they will die for their own sins and be punished for their own wickedness. And God will most surely and certainly punish them because he has declared that he will. And so when we look at the history of the world and the history of God's dealings with his people, we see God continually um, doing several things. One, he approves the, the obedient. Two, he gives grace to the penitent. And three, he punishes the wicked. Consistently, you don't see uh, different standards of justice or, or a different way of dealing with his people uh, throughout the scriptures. Well, he, God plays favorites with this person, or God plays favorites with that person. No, we find God being just and perfect. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4, it says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright, is he. There's no uh, maliciousness, no subterfuge, nothing uh, that is unjust in all of what God does. If he says so it is, then so it is, and he gives what he says he will give, whether that is grace or punishment. The, the psalmist and the, the people of God in the Old Testament, they often look at the, the kings of the nations, and they see the kings that play favorites. They see the kings that oppress the poor, and they see the, see the kings that, that take from the poor and do not defend the rights of the needy or the helpless. And they say that God is, God is the opposite. He is the one who defends the needy and the helpless. He is the one who defends the widow and the orphan. He is the one who upholds the rights of, of those who, who deserve what they deserve. He is the one who retributes according to his word, grace or punishment, not the one who is a, a fickle human man on a throne 
like the kings of the nations and like our own rulers and like ourselves. When the Israelites <clears throat> recount, uh, after the return from exile in the book of, books of Ezra and Nehemiah, just really one book, but as they recount their failings, there's a long section in Nehemiah where they, they tell their whole history. And at the, at the conclusion of confessing their sins and what God has, has done to them in punishing them through exile, they say, in all this, we have been unfaithful, but you have been faithful. They, they vindicate God's justice, not that he needs it to be vindicated, but they declare that God was just in punishing us according to his word. Had he not covenanted with them through Moses to say, if you live in unho an unholy life in my holy land, I will send the nations against you. I will uh, be against you for, for evil, not in the sense of sin, but for, for cursing, covenantal curses. And that's exactly what God did. And he even warned them through the prophets. So as they recount their history and as they look back on the dealings of God with them, they vindicate his justice and they say, you have been just. In all that you have punished, all the punishments with which you have punished us, you have been just. The justice of God is a great comfort for believers. I don't simply mean that in the sense that those who come to Christ for the first time, I mean that for those who have come to, although that's true, but those who have come to Christ, because we know that God, according to his justice, if he has declared that he will forgive the sins graciously and mercifully of all those who call upon the name of his son and will not punish them, then we know that God's not going to flip-flop. We know that God's not going to change. We know that that will remain the same for us. It, it, it adds a stability. God cannot condemn me while I am in Jesus Christ or because I am in Jesus Christ. God's justice cannot punish me if, his, if my sins are forgiven. And according to his justice, my sins are forgiven because that's what he covenanted. That is his covenant with me. Unbelievers feel a certain terror. They should feel a certain terror because of the justice of God because they know God will not fail to punish them. They know that God's justice is not going to overlook their wickedness, but rather will accuse them, show them to be guilty, and condemn them, and punish them for their sins. But we find that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So we receive, we can appeal to divine justice to forgive our sins, which does not sound right, does it? God, I appeal to your divine justice for forgiveness of my sin. You feel like, I don't want to appeal to justice when it comes to my sins, but actually we do appeal to divine justice. We're not circumventing divine justice to get to forgiveness. God himself has proposed forgiveness according to covenant in Jesus Christ. And so we do appeal to his justice. We claim forgiveness rightfully according to his justice. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so we can come always humbly and penitently, but confidently to God for the forgiveness of our sins because it would be unjust of God not to forgive us. He would have to break covenant with us and be unfaithful to his word and deny himself and lie, all of which he cannot do 
or none of which he can do, were he not to forgive our sins. Now, a few, a few concluding questions uh, and comments. Uh, three things, I think. <laughs> One is that this, God's punishment of sin, according to justice, is what we call his wrath or anger. I will say something that often shocks, not, I don't know about shocks, but often can be confusing or surprises, that's a better word, that often surprises. There is no wrath, properly so called, in God. There is no wrath, there is no anger in God. That's surprising because the scriptures in so many places speak of the wrath of God or the anger of God, don't they? And so to a Christian, it, it, it immediately sounds like an inherently uh, improbable, if not inherently wrong, proposition that there is no wrath, properly so called, in God. But remember, whatever you attribute to God, because God is simple, he is all that he is, I am that I am, whatever you attribute to him, he has it eternally, he has it unchangeably, he has it infinitely, and so are we attributing some kind of burning rage to the divine being who is forever blessed, an eternal rage, no, there, there is no fury and furor in he who is eternally happy. God forever blessed, amen. So why do the scriptures speak in so many places of the wrath and anger of God? It is because it is his justice that punishes the wicked. And so that term is borrowed from the language of, and actions of men. When we are angry, we take action against people in, in wrath. We, we cause the other person to suffer because we are angry at them. And so when God punishes the wicked and causes their suffering, we call that his wrath or anger, but we must do so without passion. There is no passion with God. And so the wrath or anger of God, so many places described in the scriptures, is his justice retributing punishment to the wicked. This means, this is the second thing, that propitiation is not a change in God. We talk about propitiation. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And it's usually, propitiation is commonly described as turning away the wrath of God. Turning away the wrath of God. That can be truly stated and understood, but it can also be falsely or wrongly stated and, and misunderstood. So what, when we say that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, what are we saying? When, when we are condemned in our sins and then we are forgiven in the blood of Jesus Christ, what changes? It's very common to think God is angry with me, God is wrathful towards me, and now God, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, has been appeased, and God is no longer wrathful and angry towards me. God is at peace with me. We often think of our salvation in terms of a propitiation that changes God in relation to us. God was angry at me as a sinner, and now God is not angry with, with me as a redeemed, forgiven believer in Jesus Christ. 
There's truths in these things, but there's also misunderstandings in these things. God does not change ever or at all, nor can he change. So what changes in salvation? It's not God who changes in relation to us. It's we who are changed in relation to God. God's justice gives grace to the penitent and punishes the wicked. One unchanging justice does different things to different objects. The, different, the difference, the variation, is not in God and his justice. The variation is in the different objects presented to his justice. And so a wicked object, a sinner, God's justice condemns and punishes, and we call that his wrath. So they are under the wrath of God while they remain in their sins. But that does not mean God is furious It means that God's justice will punish them inescapably and unquestionably. They will be punished for their sin. They are under the wrath of God. Jesus Christ's sacrifice is applied to them because they believe in him. They are forgiven of their sins. They are constituted righteous in him as his obedience is imputed to them. They are now an innocent and indeed positively righteous object. God's justice, I didn't mention this so much, but would approve, would approve and and justify, declare to be righteous, an innocent and indeed obedient subject. And so we have peace with God, and we have confidence before him through Christ. But what has changed is not that God's fury has been um, pacified, but rather that we have been cleansed, we have been forgiven, and his justice that before condemned us, his justice now approves of us, an unchanging justice, but we have been changed in relation to him. So do not think of propitiation. If we say it's turning away the wrath of God, that must be external to God. The wrath of God that would fall upon the wicked object is turned away so that they are then approved by God's justice. Yes, we can say that. Propitiation turns away the wrath of God that the subject would experience. But we shouldn't think of turning away the wrath of God in any sense within God. Where God's heart or God's being is somehow moved and pacified with relation to us. God doesn't get bought off. Uh, to, to save us. You know, I'm mad at you, but you've, you've paid me off, so now I'm not mad at you. No, rather, the perfect, unchanging God initiates our salvation. He is our Redeemer, and his justice approves us forgiven in Jesus Christ because we're no longer wicked. The third and last thing is, in what sense does mercy triumph over judgment? In in the book of James, James talks about mercy triumphing over judgment, which, if applied to God, would make it sound like the relative attributes or attributes of God 
could be in opposition to each other or competition with each other or in such a way that God would have to sort of turn one off in order to turn the other on. And in order to be one thing, he would have to cease to be another thing. If mercy triumphs over judgment in the context of the attributes that we've been studying in God, what does this mean? Does this pit God's attributes against one another? Does God have to cease to, not cease, but stop, pause his justice in order to be merciful? If mercy triumphs over judgment? And the answer is, is no, of course, that uh, God's attributes are only diverse in our minds. They're not diverse things in God. So that's the first thing to say. It's impossible for there to be a diversity of things against each other if there's no diversity in God himself. So the diversity of the attributes is only in what we perceive of the simple perfection of God. But to, to actually answer the question, in what sense does mercy triumph over judgment? Judgment, or excuse me, justice, can only approve or disapprove. Justice can either say innocent or guilty. That's what justice does. It, it retributes according to the work of the creature, innocent or guilty. Those are the only options. I give you what is due. But what, is, what was the definition of mercy that we covered last week? Mercy is to help the helpless. Mercy is to help the helpless. And so mercy can do what justice cannot do. Mercy does not have to go against justice. Mercy simply can do what justice cannot do. Mercy can help those who are disapproved. Justice says approved or disapproved, innocent or guilty, but it, it, it doesn't help. It just declares. Whereas mercy can help the one who is in a guilty or disapproved condition. And so we would then say, in what way does God help the helpless? In what way does God help the guilty and the condemned? And we would say he has provided a sacrifice in his son, Jesus Christ, an innocent and obedient sacrifice in our place, who is the, the source and the cause of the forgiveness of our sins. Now, here's, here's a debate that I'll, I'll let you chew on. Reformed theologians debated the question of, let's see how to, how to state it. How to, the, state, the status of the question is always incredibly important in how well it can be answered. Could God have forgiven our sins without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? That's, that's the question. Could God forgive our sins apart from the sacrifice of of Jesus Christ. Considering his justice and his mercy, we know that the way in which God helps the helpless is that Jesus Christ is a sacrifice in our place, he is the propitiation for our sins, and God accepts his sacrifice, God accepts us as righteous in him, forgiven and obedient. We know, we know that, and so the easy way out is to say, well, let's not theorize about how it could be, let's just rejoice in how it is. But if you have nothing else to talk about at lunch, <laughs> you can think about, could God have forgiven man or any men apart from uh, the propitiatory sacrifice or the expiatory sacrifice of Jesus Christ? And some, I'll give you what some of their answers were, there, there would have been differences of opinion. 
they would say that God, by his absolute power, remember there's a difference between absolute and, absolute and, and relational, or absolute being on its own, and relational being in relation to something else. God in himself, by his absolute power, could forgive our sins. And then the response would be, but that's not, that's not just. If God will by no means clear the, the guilty, how, why would he do that? And, and we would say, wouldn't a judge be a bad judge if there's someone clearly guilty and they just say, but we're going to cancel that? How, how is this resolved? The, those who would say that God can, could have forgiven the wicked apart from the sacrifice of Christ will make this argument and say a judge is accountable to the government and the people where he is a judge. And so there is an authority over that judge that compels that judge to act justly within the context of that realm and the laws of that realm. So that judge does not have freedom to act outside of those laws. But God, we already talked about in the positive attributes, has absolute freedom. There's, there's no one that compels him or can tell him what to do. And there's no system of justice that he, as, he ascribes to. And so, therefore, he, by his absolute power and freedom, could simply say, I will not punish you because if he is the one offended, he has the right to refuse punishment. The judge does not have the right to refuse punishment because he acts on behalf of others whose rights must be maintained. But if you are the one who is offended, this is why if your wife sins against you or you against your wife, you don't have to make them suffer for it. You can just straight up forgive them because you're the one who's been offended. And so if, if all sins are ultimately against God, then he, by his freedom and his absolute power, could decline to punish the wicked on his own. But then they will say, while we acknowledge that to be true, God has declared that he will by no means clear the guilty, he will punish the wicked, he has declared that he will, he will give the penitent salvation. According to his word, his justice is going to operate this way. And once God has said that by his ordained power, not his absolute power, but his ordained power, he cannot forgive the wicked apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So God in himself, by his absolute power, apart from his word, could have simply for declined punishment against the wicked, but God, having declared his word, because he cannot deny himself by his ordained power, he cannot clear the guilty. He must punish them, and he will punish them according to his word, and he will save all those who call upon his name in Jesus Christ. And then other people would say, no, even by his absolute power, God could not simply decline to punish the wicked, and they have their debate. But again, the easy way out is to say, well, let's not debate hypotheticals, let's rejoice in reality. And the reality is right here, that God, according to his justice, will retribute, will give back to people, according to his word, grace or punishment. And we have received grace in Jesus Christ, and God's justice to forgive us is a justice that will protect us, and we can rest in and rejoice in the relative attributes that are our God in relation to us, and we delight in him and worship him for all of them. So that concludes today's lesson, and it also concludes 
paragraph one of chapter two of our Confession of Faith. Thank you very much. You're dismissed.